Welcome back to Murder in the Black. It is your host, Steph. Happy Thursday. I wanted to update you guys very quickly about the platforms that we are on. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but we are now on iHeartRadio and also on Amazon Music. And because we're on Amazon Music, that means that we are also on Audible. So that is so exciting um, that we have finally been able to get on those different platforms. Y'all, I had a time. I had a time last night, okay? Um, I was trying to get some things situated with my anchor, um, my hosting website. I was trying to figure out some things with them and they were so helpful. And I was finally, finally, after like two months or so trying to fix it by myself, I was able to finally get on Amazon Music and iHeartRadio. So we're reaching a new audience on those platforms and so we just want to say welcome to you guys we're so excited that you came to join the the fun and the awareness that we bring here on murder in the black but without further ado let's get into our crime case for the day our crime case of the day is about beverly jackson i've entitled this case say something I chose this title because often in the black community, it's advocated by the community that if you see something, don't say anything to the cops, don't snitch, don't tell. And a lot of that is for good reason, because in the black community, we experience police brutality at a enormous rate. And also, we've just had tension with police for years. Like, we have a history of police brutality. And oftentimes, when we do speak up, the police don't listen or they don't care enough. But this case highlights why you actually should be saying something. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Beverly Jackson was originally from Jamaica, but she was seeking new opportunities and a better way of life. So she actually followed her mother to America and she didn't come over single. She actually was married. And when she got to America, her and her husband settled in Carroll City and they had children. That marriage didn't work out though. And by 1995, they had been divorced for at least 10 years. So as I said, she settled in Carroll City, Miami, Florida, and Beverly was very resilient. Despite being a single mother, she pursued her dreams ferociously. She became a nurse and quickly began working the night shift at a hospital. She was an AIDS pediatric nurse. So she worked with babies in the NICU who had AIDS. She worked this particular shift because she wanted to be a present mother. 
She wanted to make sure that she could take her kids to school in the morning, pick them up in the afternoon, attend to all of their needs. And in 1995, Beverly had a adult daughter. Her daughter was 18 years old and her daughter recently had a child of her own. And during the day while her daughter worked, Beverly actually took care of her granddaughter as well. So she was just an all-around nurturer and caretaker for her family. As I said previously, Beverly was divorced. She was a single mom, but she wasn't just doing it by herself. Beverly and her sister Sonia decided to move into a house with their children. And between Sonia and Beverly, they had seven children between them. The atmosphere of the home was very communal. They helped each other, helped with the rearing of children, going to different appointments, and handling the responsibilities of their household. But on January 16th, 1995, the police respond to a car being in a canal in Carroll City. The police officers weren't really in a rush to hurry up and respond to that call because that particular canal in Carroll City was known for people dumping their cars into the water so that they could file fraudulent insurance claims. And the police just felt like, you know what, this is just like any other time we find a car in the water. Nothing's really going to be found. And when they went out to the canal, they actually found a Toyota Terrasol. And if I'm not saying that right, charge it to my head and not my heart, girl, okay? And it was blue. And they pulled it out of the water and they found in the trunk a human, a human leg sitting halfway out the trunk as if somebody was trying to push out the back seat. They autopsied the body and they found that the body was pretty much in perfect condition. And upon looking at the body, they really couldn't find how this person even died because the condition of the body was just in prime condition. But as the doctor did the autopsy, it was revealed that this person died from drowning. After the coroner autopsied the body and identified that this person died via drowning, the police look at the trunk and they find that the bottom of the trunk was aligned with felt and they could actually see nail marks on the felt where this person was trying to get out of that trunk. They were doing everything they could to escape. And this was a terrible death. This person died a terrible death because it took about four to six minutes for them to drown. It was just horrific. So the police actually ran the license plate on the Toyota and identified the person that it belonged to. And you guessed it, it was Beverly Jackson. So what happened? According to Sonya, Beverly's sister, she said that Sonya came in on the evening of January 15th and told her sister that she was off to work her night shift and that she needed to get some gas. Sonya was kind of half asleep and so she heard Beverly's car door shut and she kind of drifted back to sleep. She assumed that Beverly arrived at work and worked her shift. So she calls the hospital at 7 a.m. to check in with Beverly to see what time she was going to get home from her shift. And 
the supervisor on call told her that Beverly actually never showed up for her shift and she was not there. They began to call her, call around, and they can't find Beverly. They don't know where she is. So they go to the police and, of course, report her missing. And in Carroll City, you had to be missing for, of course, 72 hours. The family told the police, hey, we don't keep secrets. You know, I know everything that's going on with Beverly. And there's no way she would not come home after her shift. Like, this is what she does. This is her routine. There's something very suspicious going on. And of course, the family did not wait for the police to act. They go out into the community. They put up flyers. They go routes, different routes that Beverly would take to work or take take around the neighborhood. And they just cannot find her. And they were very desperate to find out where she was. But of course, once the police respond to the call about the car being in, canal, in the canal, they know that this is Beverly. So the police go and deliver the bad news to Beverly's family. The investigation naturally picks up and the police are trying to figure out who wanted to kill Beverly. But before I get into the details of the investigation, I want to tell you guys that when they performed Beverly's autopsy, they realized that she was raped. And because the body was kept in good condition, despite being in the water, they were able to receive a semen sample and hold that sample for DNA analysis, trying to figure out who was the perpetrator. So the police naturally interview Beverly's family and want to know who was in Beverly's life. Her sister, Sonia, identifies her boyfriend, and she said this was a boyfriend that she had been dating for years. Their relationship was very rocky, and it was some alleged abuse in their relationship. So the police reach out to the boyfriend. He gladly comes in to be questioned, and he's surprised that Beverly was murdered. And he tells the police, listen, I don't know who murdered her. As a matter of fact, I wasn't even in town when she was murdered. And the police say, hey, can we get a DNA sample from you? He gladly gives them one and they check out his alibi and he's completely cleared from being a suspect. But he tells the police one thing in his interview. He says, I was, I was not the only guy that Beverly was dealing with. Actually, Beverly was dealing with her ex-husband at the time as well. So the police go and they reach out to her ex-husband. They also get a DNA test from him. And he's eliminated as a suspect as well. They are trying to get into the community and find out what could have happened to Beverly, who could have done it. And they keep hitting dead ends. So you know what happens when investigators hit dead ends in cases. The case grows cold. Now we're dealing with a cold case. And the first anniversary of Beverly's death comes. And all of the family goes out to the canal where her body is found. Media comes out. And they are just trying to reignite the case. They beg cameras and people in the community to come forward so they could get some type of closure, get justice for the death of their sister, mother, 
and daughter. They just wanted some closure and they go out, release balloons and ask again for the public's help. The family is resilient. For eight years, they regularly called the detectives and asked about an update for the case. They wanted to make sure that detectives knew that they did not forget about Beverly and they should not forget about Beverly. And actually, the detective on the case, he said, you know, usually when a case is cold, we go and we put it on the shelf. He said, but I did not do this about Beverly's case. He said, this hit home for me and I really wanted to solve it. And I kept this case on my desk because I knew that at some point somebody would come forward and confess or Tell us who we should be looking at. Thankfully, someone did come forward. And for the sake of this podcast, we will call him John Tipster. John Tipster tells the police that just three years after Beverly was murdered, he was outside shooting the breeze and smoking with one of his friends named Dwelle Green. As they're sitting down talking, Dwelle offers some information that completely catches John off guard. He tells John that he remembers killing a woman. And of course, with skepticism, John is like, man, you playing like you ain't kill nobody. And he's like, Dwelle responds and is like, no, like seriously, I was 15 years old and my partner was 16 and we were at a gas station. We saw a lady pumping gas. We carjacked her and we ended up killing her. So John is just like, man, whatever. And he's totally dismissive of Dwelle's claim. But that very same day, they go to a park and are still just out shooting the breeze when Dwelle Green's friend, Victor Pastiano, pulls up on him. And in response to John's skepticism, Dwelle tells Victor, Victor, don't you remember when we ended up killing a woman and John looks over at Victor Victor looks over at John and while Victor never verbally confirms he non-verbally confirms that this did indeed happen and John is totally freaked out and he just kind of like changes the subject very quickly after receiving John Tipster's um information the police take it very seriously 16 years have passed and they know they must pursue these suspects they emphasize that Dwelle Green and Victor Pastiano doesn't have any true criminal history um, between them usually perpetrators who commit violent crimes they have a history of violence Dwelle Green especially had nothing in his history at all besides parking tickets and speeding tickets and Victor Pastiano had some criminal activity but none of it was violent so to look at these two individuals you would not think they were related to such a violent crime they immediately go and interview both guys and they are able to retrieve DNA evidence from both of them now the guys go ahead and waive their Miranda rights. And Dwelle initially tells them what happened. He says that Victor was the one who did everything and he just was kind of a victim of circumstance, so to speak. Victor doesn't say anything. Like he just says, I don't know what you're talking about. And in, I don't want to say a desperate attempt, but in an attempt to get them to kind of tell on themselves, 
The police put both Victor and Duele in the same room and they left the tape rolling. So you could see everything. You could hear everything in the room. And it's like these guys never watched CSI or SVU, Law and Order, because they told on themselves. Dwelle Green and Victor both say, hey, you know, let's just say that there was a third person that was there and we can put all the blame on this third person. We can say they they were the one who put her in the trunk. They were the one who did the actual murder and we were just present. And they desperately, in an attempt to try to just dismiss themselves of any wrongdoing, Dwelle says, well, hey, my sister has a ex-boyfriend who's dead. Let's just pin it on him because, you know, the dead can't talk. The police had enough evidence to charge and arrest Victor and Dwelle, and they start to prepare all the evidence for trial. But as they're preparing, John Tipster vanishes, and this is somewhat of a major blow for prosecutors because they wanted to make sure they had all their ducks in a row so that they could definitely get the win that they desired and put these murderers away for the justice of Beverly Jackson. However, they still had the DNA evidence that they ran through the lab and it was a match for Victor. However, it was not a match for Dwelle. And so they wanted to make sure they had the testimony of John Tipster to accompany with the DNA evidence so that they could put them both away to secure the story and to have the evidence and testimony to put these guys away for good. Thankfully, John Tipster reappears right at the beginning of trial and agrees to testify. So prosecutors allege with the accompany uh, testimony of John that Beverly was on her way to work on the night of her murder. And if you remember, I said at the beginning of the story that Sonia, Beverly's sister, said that Beverly said to her on the way to work that she had to get some gas. So Beverly stops for gas and she also gets a cup of coffee and on the way out back to her car to pump her gas two teenage boys approached her at gunpoint they make her get into her car and she is pleading with them to let her go don't hurt her and she would give them whatever they wanted they said they weren't gonna hurt her but according to john they drive her to a school where they then rape her I've said already that Dwelle was 15 and Victor was 16 years old and Dwelle has a very different name. And after Victor rapes Beverly, he calls for Dwelle to join in and he says his name. And because Victor says his name, Dwelle and Victor agree that they should just go ahead and murder Beverly because now she couldn't identify them. The sad part about all of this is that literally the school that they took her to was just three blocks away from her home. And so they could have just left her there and went about their business. They did not have to kill her. But because they felt like she was going to be able to recall this very unique name, they decided to kill her. 
So they forced her into the trunk and then put the car in reverse, which didn't work. And when the police pull her Toyota out of the water, they noticed that there was some damage to the bumper where they tried to reverse the car. So then they decided to just put the car in. Um, What is it? What is it, guys? Y'all know what I'm thinking. They put the car in neutral <laughs> and they just rolled the car into the canal. Now, I think I've already said that it took about four to six minutes for Beverly to drown. And it's such a shame because they didn't show any remorse, according to Beverly's family, during the trial. They didn't seem like they cared. They seemed like they were just here because they had to be. It was just so incredibly sad that these guys had no feeling at all for the heinous crime that they committed. So both of their trials did not run together. They ran separately. And for Dwelle's trial, at the end, the verdict for him, they handed him down four life sentences for robbery, hijacking, and murder, and sexual battery. In January of 2007, Victor was handed down two life sentences kidnap for kidnapping and first degree murder plus 60 years in prison for carjack for carjacking and sexual battery Sonia Beverly's sister and her other sister Janet said they felt closure finally and they knew that Beverly had the justice that she deserved and they loved her dearly. So for them, it was just a long time coming. And they were so happy that these guys were put away in prison with no chances of ever getting out. Janet, Beverly's sister, came forward in an interview and said that she just really appreciated John coming forward. She realizes that without his testimony, without his bravery, um, they would probably have never solved her sister's crime. They would have been left with this emptiness of how did this ever happen to our sister? And he gave them the answers that the Jackson family needed. And as a result of coming forward, they were able to put her murderers behind bars. And she just really appreciated that he came forward. And she never had a chance to, at the trial, to thank John. And so she finally had an opportunity to come face to face with John Tipster and express her gratitude. She hugged him and she just thanked him so much for coming forward because he received death threats. He was in fear for his life. He ended up having to move from from Florida and family and friends rejected him and he had to start a new life. And he said that he really appreciated her thanking him because it gave him the freedom to finally move on. He said he had been stuck in time for so long holding on to that particular information, but now he felt like he could finally move on. That is the conclusion of Beverly Jackson's story. I wanted to say that I hope this story brings awareness and helps to dispel the stigma of not telling within the Black community. 
we really do ourselves a disservice by not speaking up about the crimes that go on in our neighborhoods, that happen in our communities. Although I do understand that there's a reason why we kind of landed in this place of not speaking, and there are still some really convincing reasons why maybe we shouldn't speak up. But I believe that the pros of speaking up, far they far outweigh the cons. Um, just thinking about Beverly Jackson's family waiting 16 years to get answers and to alleviate some of their pain that was caused when their loved one was murdered. It just, it speaks volumes that John Tipster came to the forefront and said something. So I encourage you guys, my audience, our fans, if you know about any crimes that happen in your community, um, maybe in a neighborhood you once stayed in, regardless of how long it's been, regardless if you thought that person was playing and you were dismissive, say something. It may lead to the resolve of a case. And it could be murder. It could be robbery. It could be anything. But speak up. People, families deserve answers. And people deserve to be held responsible for their bad actions. I know you think this was it. And usually it is. But today we're trying out something new. So stay tuned for a new segment called What's Happening Now. Welcome to our first segment of What's Happening Now. Now I have to discuss what is this all about, right? So sometimes I can get emotionally exhausted after doing our weekly true crime cases. And I love bringing awareness to crimes that go on in the black community, but sometimes I can just feel a little blah at the end. So this is my attempt to try to let our hair down and it's an opportunity for you guys to interact with us as well. Where we just talk about like things that's happening in true crime cases that may be going on right now, or we can just talk about random things that are happening in pop culture. And we want you guys to participate with us. So at the end of this segment, we will give you an opportunity to know how you can participate uh, for these weekly segments. But I did not have you guys to help me pick a topic this week. So I picked the topic. Let's get into it. The topic that I've chose to discuss is the case of Christian Toby Obamaselli. I want to give you some facts about the case and then we'll get into my opinion about it. So on April 3rd, 2022, Toby was stabbed to death by his girlfriend, Courtney, in their high-rise condo in Miami, Florida. She immediately pled self-defense. He was pronounced dead at the hospital, and Courtney was admitted to the hospital for mental health for a mental health evaluation. She actually only ended up staying for less than two days, and she was released. Now, as you can imagine, Christian's family was very, Christian Toby, I'm going to use that interchangeably, 
his family was very upset because they felt like the only reason why Courtney was released and not arrested was because of her white privilege. This is an interracial couple. Christian Toby is black and she is white. And they said there was noticeable foul play and they believe that she murdered Christian Toby. So um, let's just talk about their relationship. Now, their relationship was described as combative, to say the least, since November of 2020. Now, security and security staff documented loud arguments between the couple. They got a ton of complaints from tenants. And actually, they were facing eviction proceedings right before Toby was murdered. So there's a history of violence between this couple. Now, the update here is that there was new footage that was obtained back from February of 2021 elevator footage of Courtney and Toby going up to their condo in the elevator and it shows Courtney repeatedly hitting Toby grabbing his hair hitting him pushing him um and he's trying to combat her violent actions right as you can imagine incidents like this cause couples to separate which they probably should have dissolved this relationship but they did not and the last separation that happened was the last week of March when Courtney kicked Toby out of their condo while her mom was visiting from Texas. Now, they reconnected April 1st. He moves back in after Courtney's mom goes back to Texas. Arguments, of course, re-ensue. Police um, are called out to their condo for the disruptions and the arguments there's even some footage of her um being recorded by the police and they can tell that she's intoxicated and it's just a lot of back and forth that exists between Courtney and Toby there is a new account on what actually happened on the day of Toby's death now if you don't know Courtney Taylor Clinny is actually an Instagram influencer slash the OnlyFans content creator. OnlyFans is basically a space where you can go and create content and people basically pay subscriptions to watch your content. So she's used to watching or recording, I should say, herself to upload this content. So the couple films themselves that day before they go their separate ways and leave the condo. Toby returns back home at 4.33 p.m. with sandwiches for the couple. Courtney calls her mom at 4.43 and again at 4.49. And by 4.57, she calls 911, where you can actually hear Toby on the call saying that he was dying, losing feelings in his arms, and she was heard saying that she was sorry. Investigators now believe that that she was on the phone with her mother while she stabbed Toby. He had a three inch deep stab wound to his chest and it was a forceful downward thrust. This is important. Okay. Now she was just recently like last month. Well, actually we're not, we're in October. So it was two months ago or maybe it was September that she was arrested for his murder. She was down in Hawaii at a rehab treatment facility 
um, being treated for PTSD when she was arrested. She never thought that she would be arrested. Neither did her lawyer. They felt like this was a, you know, very clear case of self-defense. But the police said they did not arrest Courtney initially because they were gaining evidence so that they could successfully prosecute her because they knew something wasn't right, but they didn't have all the evidence that they needed to arrest her. And a part of that evidence is her inconsistent account of what happened that day. She told police that Toby pushed her against a wall by the neck, but didn't choke her. Then she changed it and said that he threw her to the ground and didn't allow her to get up. That's when she grabbed a knife and stabbed him. She claims that she threw the knife from 10 feet away. Now, medical examiners have came forward and said that a knife thrown from that distance would not caused, would not have caused Toby to die. It would have caused an injury, but it would not have caused him to die. Because if you remember, it was a three inch deep stab wound with a forceful downward thrust. I don't even know why I just did that with my voice, but I had to just like emphasize the forcefulness of the thrust. Okay. Now, Courtney had no injuries at all. And there's been several friends and family that have came forward that said that they have seen Courtney several times hit Christian Toby. And there also have been accounts by security that said that they saw him swinging at her in the days leading to his death. And they also saw him forcefully charging at her. So there's a little bit of mixed information. And I guess what it comes down to is what you believe. So here's my opinion. I believe that this case is not as cut and dry as Courtney's lawyer is attempting to make it, right? I believe that this story has very many layers and a part of me reserves my opinion until the trial happens. And, you know, the the, the wheels of justice turn slow, so who knows when that will happen, But I don't want to say some of the things I want to say until I see all the evidence that is presented. But here's what I will say. I presented this story on TikTok like back in April and I got a ton of mixed reviews like and a lot of reviews that leaned more to the side of this guy, Christian Toby Obamaselli, made comments on his uh, Twitter back when he was in high school. Now, Toby was 27 years old when he passed away. Um, and he released comments on his Twitter that basically just was very negative towards black women, like how white women were so much more better than black women. They were far superior to black women and he would never be caught dating a black woman. And a lot of those Twitter reactions were found when he passed away and were presented via social media. 
And so when I presented this story, a lot of black women were like, we don't care about this case. You remember, he don't like us. So we don't, we're not advocating for him. Then you had some people, not a large amount, but some people who said, you know, he was 17 years old. We would like to think that this man evolved. You know, what happened to him was not right, regardless of where he landed on his beliefs and who he wanted to date, right? I think that for me, that is a side conversation. It has really nothing to do with the case itself. I believe that he should not have been killed regardless of where he falls on the issue of black women. And I believe that his story is worth being told because it can definitely serve as a cautionary tale for a black man in relationship with interracial women does not mean that this will be your story or your demise, but it could be right. I also believe that this is a good story to have a open discussion about domestic abuse with men. As much as we talk about domestic abuse with women, which should be talked about, screamed in the streets, we should have that conversation. There has to be a conversation that exists with the same amount of volume about men who experience domestic abuse. I can, if I'm woman enough to talk about domestic abuse and how it affects women and at the rate that it affects women, I have to be as big as an advocate for men. And I don't think there's enough people talking about that. And this case coins the fact that not enough people are talking about that, that not enough people give that discussion enough. They don't give it space. To exist in the same conversation as domestic abuse against women. And so to me, I understand black women who say, I don't think we should even be advocating for this man. You know, he don't care about us. He said he didn't. So I'm believe what he said. I, I get it. I understand that. And I feel like that is a whole nother conversation. And I think it's a conversation that you could have inside of this bigger conversation about domestic abuse that happens with men. But I definitely think it's side. I don't think it's the main topic. I do not believe that it's the main topic. And I believe that he experienced domestic abuse. The fact that friends were able to come forward and say, yeah, we witnessed Courtney hitting him. I mean, did y'all tell him to leave like you would have if, if, if it was a woman? Or did you just think, this is a bit black guy. You know, it'll be all right. She can't really hurt him. And then look what happened. Look what happened. I just, I just believe that a lot of my opinion is tabled until the trial, until I see some more evidence. Um... But overwhelmingly, what I have found is that there is domestic abuse, clear, cut and dry domestic abuse that happened to Christian Toby Obama's cell. Like, just clear. 
I mean, I saw it with my own eyes. So what do you guys think about this case? Just the facts. I think we can have a conversation about the interracial aspect. We can have a conversation about him and his statements that he made as a young man about black women, about him choosing white women above black women. But I also think our bigger conversation should be about domestic abuse that happens to men, because I don't think as women, we don't advocate enough for it. We don't have enough conversations about it. And I feel like that's on the rise. I do. I I feel like that is on the rise. I would have to look at, obviously, statistical evidence to be able to back my statement. But I just I have heard more and more about these incidents. And it's it's very surprising, but believable. And it's not okay. So this is our episode of what's our segment, I should say, of what's happening now. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Definitely leave us some voice messages on Spotify and Anchor. We're anchor.fm slash backslash murder in the black. You can leave us a voice note. Tell us what you thought about this episode. Tell us about what you thought about this segment. You can also leave us questions on TikTok and our Instagram. You can DM us. um, And I say leave it on Instagram. Sometimes TikTok, it doesn't always get to us. Because if I'm not following you, then I don't get the question. And, you know, that's just a lot more of a hassle. But I always get it on Instagram. So we're Murder in the Black on both of those platforms. Until next time, friends, this is Murder in the Black.